Well, good morning. So thankful to have, I guess two weeks ago, had uh, Pat Peters fill in while I was away, and uh, last week to be able to have our missionaries from South Africa, the Deswats, with us, and to enjoy, be encouraged, and edified by the preaching uh, that Sabrin brought from James on mindful suffering. Uh, and really it fits well, actually both of those past uh, two Sundays have fit well with our study in Matthew and um, particularly where we're at in Matthew this morning as we continue our study through the gospel uh, here in chapter 10. The song we just sang, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, speaks to the reality of trials, difficulties, suffering in life. It's what we were reminded of last week. It's not new. It shouldn't be a surprise to the Christian. I was reminded in my study this week, and I was just contemplating as we look here at Matthew 10, and we'll read the text in a moment this morning, of the preparation of the apostles for ministry. And we also are reminded from this of the preparation or the instructions we're given as we embark upon ministry. Is I began to think about what does it look like when you begin to prepare someone for ministry of any sort, when you send someone out on a mission, how would I go about it? How would you go about it? As I was studying this week, one of the commentators reminded me of uh, some of the words of some of those who have prepared persons for missions in the past, not necessarily biblical missions. The Italian uh, Garibaldi in 1849 said to his soldiers, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing left to offer you but hunger, thirst, hardship, and death. But I call on all who love their country to join me. Winston Churchill, after the Allies were forced to evacuate Dunkirk in 1940, near the beginning of World War II, said to his fellow Englishmen, all I can offer you is blood, sweat, and tears. This sort of honesty and transparency that accurately assesses the difficulty of a mission or task is necessary. But why is it necessary? Why is something like that helpful? Why not hide from someone you're sending on a mission the difficulty that's ahead? I mean, maybe they would shirk back if they really know what's in front of them. Well, it's important so that those who embark on the ministry and the mission do not quickly lose hope, so they don't become immediately discouraged, caught unawares. It's this type of transparency that Jesus demonstrates in when he describes and prepares these apostles for ministry and for the ministry he's sending them out on. Specifically this morning, this commissioning of the 12 apostles. As MacArthur notes, Jesus does not send his followers out without warning about the demands and dangers of discipleship. Nor did his apostles mislead the early church about what belonging to Christ would cost. As he wrote to encourage and strengthen Timothy, his son in the faith, Paul also assured him that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now before we put too gloomy of a picture on it, neither in the life of Jesus nor in the life of the apostles was it characterized by uninterrupted hardship and persecution. We can even look in the Gospels and see times of joy, celebration, and rejoicing in the life of Jesus and the apostles. Paul writes of the joy he experienced just being in the presence and fellowship that came with being with other believers. But 
Faithfulness to God guarantees that at some time and to some degree, Satan and his world system will exact a price for it. The most skilled soldier or the best boxer can be injured or even lose their life if caught by surprise. So this morning as we study the warning of coming persecution for preaching and the dangers and demands of discipleship, we want to ensure and to remind ourselves so that we are not caught off guard, not caught by surprise when we encounter times where the world hates us, they persecute us for the sake of the gospel. So read along with me as we read our text this morning from Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you will say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. These verses, verses 16 through 23, have two sections, each containing warning as well as encouragement to the apostles as they embark upon the ministry to which God has called them through Jesus. A ministry that is, as we've looked at previously, an answer to the prayers of the larger group of disciples after Jesus called upon them. At the end of chapter 9, we saw this. He called upon them to pray for workers in the harvest. After feeling compassion over the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus tells all of his disciples, this large group of disciples says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send his workers into the harvest. So in answer to that prayer, we have the sending of these 12 apostles. These instructions, however, are not only for this one mission. They also look ahead to future ministry and missions, as we'll discuss this morning. Likewise, as we'll see, they have implications and lay the groundwork for similar exhortations that are given to all faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to spend time studying the first warning and encouragement, which is found in verses 16 through 20. And as we've noted in previous weeks, it's important to remember the context. There's a lot we could say about the overall context, about where Jesus is, where he's preaching, the people, Socioeconomic. We could talk about all different areas of context, but specifically the context of who are receiving these direct instructions. And the immediate recipients are the 12 apostles. It's likely that the other disciples heard this commissioning as he called them out from the group. Perhaps others even heard it. But in light of the fact that it is to the 12 apostles, there's two errors I want us to avoid. And this isn't just true of this morning. It'll be true any time we study Scripture. One is then assuming that every instruction in this commissioning that began all the way back in chapter 10, at the beginning of chapter 10, verse 1, that it automatically, in its, the way it's 
written and it was communicated applies the same way to every believer today. This is actually somewhat obvious. You probably do this without even realizing it. For example, none of you are traveling through Galilee. As far as I know, none of you are healing lepers, raising the dead. So we know there's got to be some differences, and that comes pretty naturally. But if we're not careful to think about how we do this, we become selective. And so we need to know it's right to be selective, but how are we being selective? Why are we being selective? And in what ways are we being selective? We talked last week about mindful suffering. We also need to have mindful Bible reading. Secondly, though, there's another error. And that's to be careful not to assume that just because these instructions were given to the apostles, that they have little or no application or instruction for our lives today. You could see how you could go one way or the other. Oh, these were to the apostles. Well, that's interesting. I'll see what he had to say to the apostles. But I keep it at an arm's length because it doesn't apply to me today. There's error and danger in that as well. Because if all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and training in righteousness, then we need to be asking, in what way do these instructions to the apostles apply to us today? Do we have the same instruction, a similar instruction? What other scriptural passages tie into these, reinforce these, broaden these with similar instructions to all believers, all who desire to be faithful disciples in Christ Jesus? By taking the time to carefully ask and answer these questions, when we study our Bibles, when we read our Bibles, we study together like we are this morning, we can avoid common errors and pitfalls in interpretation. And ultimately, that avoids frustration and disappointment in the Christian life. If you went out expecting to be able to raise the dead, you would be pretty disappointed. So let's turn our attention with these questions in the back of our mind, and we'll ask some of them explicitly this morning. Let's turn our attention back to verses 16 through 20. Jesus has concluded instructions from verses 5 through 15, which give specific instructions, including the geographical limitations and even the particulars of the ministry and finding lodging as the apostles go out. Not just finding lodging, but when is it time to move on to the next place? He now turns from these broader areas of preparation to now the preparing of their character and really the setting of their minds. Like verse 5, Jesus begins with the, I send you out, or I am sending you, emphasizing their apostleship and the ministry of those who are sent out by Christ. We were reminded several weeks ago, the term apostle means, it's the nominative form, but the verbal form is to send out. To be an apostle is to be one who is sent out. And so that term apostle is simply descriptive. But it's all this connotation of what their responsibilities are that began to help Establish in our minds what it means to be an apostle. Now imagine for a moment that you are preparing to send someone on a mission. It's, you want to get them excited and prepared for it. Um, to say that college football, for example, is important in the South might be the understatement of the year. But when a coach or a team leader is getting the team excited to run out of the locker room with a mission of taking on the opposing team, and they're shouting encouragements. They're talking about, to them about how strong, how prepared they are, how ready they are for this mission. They hype them up. They give them confidence as they go out. So what does Jesus do? What does he say to these 12 apostles, 11 of whom were tortured and imprisoned at some point? All of them suffered loss, and all save John were martyred. What strong, what powerful image does Jesus use to describe these men of whom the world is not worthy? 
sheep. He calls them sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I would be ready to take on the powers of darkness if I was just called a sheep. But that's not the, that actually is the point, isn't it? They were not to try and go out on this mission in their own strength. They needed to be reminded from the outset that like sheep that are needy, they needed to go out in neediness. Understanding, oriented to the fact that they could not do this in their own strength. In fact, if they try, they will fail. Sheep are used throughout Scripture for a variety of purposes. A variety of illustrations, usually with some reference to helplessness or neediness. And it's no different in this passage. Though the apostles are being prepared and sent on a mission, it is not a mission that will succeed through self-reliance. They will need the instructions of Jesus. They will need the provision of God to complete their task. And in fact, you may remember a few weeks ago, to help already establish this reminder of neediness, this dependence upon God, what did he tell them not to do on this particular ministry and mission that he sent them out on? Don't take with you anything extra, anything superfluous. No extra pair of sandals, no extra staff. Don't bring with you any uh, a money belt. Don't bring any of those things. I will provide for you. From the outset, he was establishing within them the reminder that they needed to trust God for the mission. And by way of just brief illustration and application, or maybe we would say implication, if the apostles, trained by Jesus, were depicted as helpless and needy, how much more so do we fit that description? And yet I think we do all we can to avoid looking like sheep. It's almost like we're embarrassed to look like sheep. We try to accomplish things in our own strength. We try to accomplish them in our own power. We don't pray like we should. We don't ask others for help like we should. We want to be seen as strong. We want to be seen as capable. But we forget that Jesus has described us as needy sheep. At least our actions highlight that we have forgotten this. Functionally, we have forgotten this. No matter how capable, no matter how skilled you are, God has gifted us in many different ways. I look around and there's many different giftings and abilities that we have. And yet, even in those, we are needy. Well, there's some specific neediness that he wants to highlight here. The imagery of sheep surrounded by wolves suggests violence. It prepares the hearers, specifically the apostles, for the persecutions that are going to be described in the following verses. A description that looks beyond this first mission. It even begins to incorporate the overall ministry they will have throughout the rest of their lives that only grows worse from this first ministry onward. However, Jesus didn't stop with the imagery of sheep. He tells these sheep to take on additional characteristics, to develop additional tools for this mission. First, he says that as they go out as sheep in the midst of wolves, Reminding them of their ultimate character, they're also to demonstrate this. What is the first thing we see? Well, they are to be shrewd as a serpent. That is, as wise, as careful as a serpent. Now, if you're like me, your first thought was not a very positive one when you read this. In fact, your first thought may run all the way back to Genesis 3, where you remember a shrewd serpent, and that guy was not good. He was the father of evil. 
deceiving Adam and Eve, plunging, being the instrument used for Adam's disobedience, which plunged the world into sin, sickness, and death. The whole reason that Jesus' redemptive ministry was necessary. And so we often associate this shrewdness of a serpent with evil because of the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The embodiment of Satan as a serpent, more shrewd, more crafty than any other creature God had made. Well, that shrewdness can certainly be used for evil. There's a reason that Satan chose a serpent. But let's put our thinking caps on. The serpent was more shrewd than any creature God had created. That's looking back to creation. When God created all of these animals, what did he say? They are very good. You see, there was nothing inherently wrong or evil or wicked about the shrewdness of the serpent. It was the serpent embodied by Satan, and using that shrewdness for evil. But the description itself, the shrewdness of a serpent, is not inherently evil. It's benign until it's applied to something. It's when that wisdom or smarts, when the cleverness is used for evil, that it begins to take on all of the evil connotations and problems arise. In the Old Testament, Israel was actually described with shrewdness. Unfortunately, it follows after evil, resembling Satan in the garden rather than any positive characteristics. Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are dumb children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil. But to do good, they do not know. Shrewdness is often oriented toward evil in this world. However, what we have in Matthew is a positive affirmation, not a negative one. Jesus doesn't send these apostles out to be shrewd and evil. In fact, the apostles are exhorted to reclaim shrewdness and to use it to bring God glory as they embark on their ministry. So shrewdness is not the problem, but rather what you do with shrewdness that matters. How do you ensure that this craftiness, this shrewdness, this wisdom does not lead to evil? Well, Jesus provides the answer with the introduction of a third animal metaphor. Notice it's not a verse later. It's not a sentence later. It's a clause later. In fact, it's joined by and. In other words, you have to have both of these things in order to rightly embody either one. To protect against the negative Potential with shrewdness, the apostles are exhorted to be as innocent as doves. In fact, this innocence and dove-like character is to be joined with the shrewdness. They are inseparable. You cannot separate these two things as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You are not to be a dove without being shrewd. You are not to be shrewd without being innocent. One without the other fails to follow this injunction, this instruction. Doves were regarded in both Greek and Jewish culture of the first century, symbols of purity, of integrity, of harmlessness. In other words, don't act like the serpent in the garden who used his cleverness to entice to sin, but rather use it to glorify God. Wilkins notes, without innocence, the keenness of the snake is crafty, a devious menace. Without keenness, the innocence of a dove is naive, helpless gullibility. Both are necessary. 
We see this exhortation to the apostles, this need to be as shrewd as a serpent while simultaneously being as innocent, as pure as a dove. But how about other believers? Was this just an exhortation to the apostles at this one point in time? Or are we to imitate this pattern in life? Well, Paul makes a similar exhortation in his letters to the churches, to the Romans and the Corinthians. Although, rather than making it metaphorical, he just jumps right to what these things stand for. And it highlights really the universal appeal of this maxim, this instruction to believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. In Romans 16, 19, Paul writes, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Notice how he joins them together. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. We see... We further see the admonition of blamelessness and innocence in Philippians 2, so that you will prove to be children, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. One commentator notes, the Christian is to interact with outsiders with a practical wisdom and a behavioral innocence, so that the kingdom truths go out with divine power without hindrance. If persecution comes, it must be unearned. Yet come, it will. The only way we should earn persecution is through the preaching of the gospel. Anything else we do to earn persecution is not suffering for the sake of Christ. It sounds simple, it sounds clear. But as soon as you begin to apply that in life, you realize how difficult that at times becomes. It's clear from these verses and others like it that the instructions to the apostles is carried forward to all believers. It started with the apostles. It was made clear first to the apostles as the foundation of the church. But the apostles themselves began to teach these same things to other believers. So how do we do this? How can we demonstrate wisdom or shrewdness, and how can we put this into practice in innocence? What does it look like? Shrewdness or wisdom, which is used to describe shrewdness by Paul, is found throughout Scripture. James actually picks up on this same idea. He also talks a lot about wisdom. We go to James and we talk about wisdom. James says in James 3.17, but wisdom from above is first pure. Notice that purity combined with wisdom. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 10 by way of the snake and the dove. He goes on to say, it is then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. The seed of whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So wisdom seeks peace. Wisdom is gentle. Wisdom is reasonable. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. What are good fruits? It's the actions. It's the deeds. It's the things we practice. What makes them good? What makes them good is if they are in obedience to God and if they bring glory to Him.
The book of Proverbs goes into great detail to describe what wisdom looks like in this world. It's an excellent place to start to see what it means to live wisely or shrewdly in this world. And yet all of those maxims, those teachings in Proverbs are to be joined with the innocence and the purity and the obedience of a life that is handed over to the Lord. This purity, this innocence of a dove, we have several examples and instructions of what this is to look like. The most important being from Christ himself. 1 Peter 2.23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. It's to speak harshly, to speak hatefully. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the him who judges righteously. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.12, we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul says to the Ephesians, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That is a wonderful picture of that combination of wisdom, knowing when to speak and what to speak, and that innocence of how to communicate. If we could, as a church, as believers in this world, just put Ephesians 4.29 into practice, it would be a much healthier place. If we just focused on this one set of instructions, it would eliminate so many problems inside the church and outside the church. When it comes to the proclamation of the gospel, to proclaim it in purity means to present the gospel honestly. When you say, what does that mean? It means we need to be honest about what the gospel says. We need to be honest about what repentance means. To present it honestly would be to reject anything that says, well, if you come to Christ, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Instead, it's lay up your treasures in heaven. To present the gospel honestly means to talk about what repentance from sin looks like. What it means to be a slave of Christ. It means to teach clearly concerning sin, judgment, and hell so that the good news of salvation and the hope for unbelievers can shine forth. Look, the good news, the brilliant light of the gospel can't be seen if you don't show the darkness of sin and hell. So having laid forth the requirement for wisdom combined with purity and innocence, Jesus now gives the apostles warning or an expectation of where they need to apply this wisdom purity in verses 17 and 18 and why they need to do it. Verse 17 starts with, Beware of men. Contrary to the popular belief of our day, people are not inherently good. Sinful persons are selfish persons. Unredeemed sinful persons will act according to their nature, which is self-preservation and self-aggrandizement every single time. Sadly, even believers can fall back into these sinful patterns, but the difference is that they, having been given a new nature, have the ability to act contrary to that old sinful pattern. And so we can expect believers to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, even though we know we have all failed. 
That's where the ongoing repentance and confession of sin and the purification from sin that 1 John talks about becomes so important. However, it is because persons are naturally sinful, selfish, and self-serving that Jesus says, beware of men. Perhaps one of the most important places to beware of men is when they start to lavish praise upon you. Be cautious. It's an area where you should be applying that shrewdness. Jesus knew this all too well. Even though he had not yet experienced it, he knew what was to come. He knew that the praises of the crowds would in a short time be turned into crucify him. People are fickle. And while they are happy to be entertained, the moment you began preaching to them about sin, begin shining the light of the gospel on their need for salvation, they either respond in repentance to the glory of God or more frequently and sadly with anger and malice. Matthew highlights first the Jewish persecution when he talks about they'll drag you to the synagogues. He follows that up by the Gentile persecution of the kings. It's interesting that this It's really a foreshadowing of the pattern that was to come. In fact, even the instructions that they are later given to go out and be witnesses in Judea, Sumeria, and then all the world. Paul talks about the gospel was preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. You continue to see this pattern explicitly and implicitly throughout Scripture. It's just an interesting observation, but it also points to the fact that Jesus is now broadening this instruction. This is not just for this immediate ministry. He is anticipating multiple governors, multiple kings to whom they will be going to. He knows that they will continue to endure this type of persecution. They need to prepare for this, yes, for this immediate ministry, but it's only going to get worse from here, and they need to be ready. Jesus' description here of what is to come looks beyond the immediate ministry to the pattern and ministry of the apostles in the years after his ascension. It looks beyond the Galilee ministry and begins preparing these 12 as apostles for the rest of their lives. It prepares them for the expectation of suffering, rejection, and hardship. It also highlights what we saw a few weeks ago, where this ministry, even though we even saw that initial instruction of this initial ministry, how it was there within Galilee, it was never a Jewish-only message. Jesus here is implying the overall testimony witnessing to the whole world in the commissioning of the disciples and apostles. They will begin to experience these things now in Galilee in this ministry, but it will continue. It will be experienced in much greater ways in the years ahead with governors, kings, ultimately even emperors. Notice at the end of verse 18 how the end result of being turned over to them is that they will be a testimony to the persecutors. They're not to actively seek out persecution. It's going to come. Jesus even tells them earlier that they can go from one city to the next. We read at the end of verse 23, they can flee from one city to the next. There's wisdom to be applied. There's times to run, times to flee. But he says, be prepared that it will come. And we see that reality throughout Acts. You may remember the story of the Philippian jailer where in the midst of that suffering, just the singing and the testimony resulted in his salvation and the salvation of his entire household. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 26. Acts 26. 
one of those examples of this testimony that went out. Beginning down in verse 19. This is Paul to King Agrippa. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, there's that pattern again, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, notice that's the reason why he was seized. It wasn't because he was obnoxious. It wasn't because he stole. It was because he preached the gospel. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having attained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Well, Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. I speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Uh, I like almost the humor he has in that defense while standing there enchained. How many times throughout history has the captive, the Christian captive, been given a captive audience? An audience surrounded there to where the proclamation of the gospel is unlike any they've ever heard. Think about the irony in that. Now, it takes one in chains and gives him the captive audience. Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John, born in the early first century, lived many, many years. He died an old man. He was actually martyred as an old man. At his old age, he was to be burned at the stake because he refused to burn incense and worship the emperor. Taking some measure of pity at the thought of burning an old man to death and probably the appearance of what it would have looked like, the officials offered Polycarp one last chance to avoid the flames if just offer the incense. Polycarp is recorded to have said, Eighty and six years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. As he was tied to the stake, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I might share the cup of Christ. Polycarp was burned, and while burning alive, he was pierced through with a spear, but not before testifying to crowds and to rulers. It's one of many, many Many examples. And I want you to notice here that while the apostles are to be careful and wary of men and not rush into martyrdom, 
They're not to despair when persecution does come. Because God intends to use even that for the proclamation of his gospel. Our responsibility is to maintain our innocence so that the only accusation, the reason in which, for which it comes, is because of the gospel. To maintain our innocence so that the only accusation that can be leveled against us is that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. As Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers. Or he says Gentiles, meaning all unbelievers. So in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your behavior excellent among those who are watching. We are to be wary and circumspect with regard to this world, but not so cunning and circumspect that, as D.A. Carson says, we degenerate into fear or elusiveness. We must not be afraid to encounter any danger. Doesn't mean we rush into it. We're cautious, we're careful, but we shouldn't fear it. To fear it and to avoid all danger at all costs is to run the risk of denying Christ. Many persons are concerned or afraid of preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel with their friends or their neighbors because they think they may be rejected, they might be made fun of, they might be made uncomfortable. They might be thought of as foolish or simple-minded. Well, let me get this out of the way. You're right. They're right. That will happen. It has happened. It does happen. Proclamation leads to persecution. They are inseparable. Your context may be significantly different, and in fact, it may be significantly limited in the severity and the type of the persecution. I honestly have a hard time in this country even calling it persecution by comparison to those in North Korea, Muslim countries, or radical Hinduism, where to share your faith results in imprisonment and death and torture. But the reality is that we need to go out expecting to be mocked, expecting to be made uncomfortable, expecting to be disliked for the message, often hated. When that's our expectation, we're not going to be surprised when they do. We don't have to fear that they do. Our goal is not to go to the grave with as many friends and neighbors liking us as possible. They should certainly respect our actions and our deeds. They should think of us as persons who are kind and gracious. But hopefully, if they are not saved, they're very uncomfortable with us. Jesus closes out this first warning by discussing the testimony that will take place in the midst of persecution in verses 19 through 20. He says there, But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in the, that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The expression, do not worry, is not a new one to us in this study. Of Matthew. We saw it several times. In fact, it made up about the second half of chapter 6. It was all on, do not worry, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. But now Jesus is applying it to very specific instances, or a very specific instance, one in which a faithful disciple is persecuted for the gospel. In that situation, Jesus says, do not worry about what you will say. You will need to speak, but don't fret over that. Why? Because it will be given to you. Will be given is a passive. 
something we would refer to as a divine passive. And we've talked about this before. It's a statement of something happening without naming the subject who makes it happen. And yet it's obviously God. That's why we call it a divine passive. It doesn't say God will give it to you. It said it will be given to you. Now, the reason for doing this is it makes us lean in to say, okay, but where does it come from? Well, in this case, Jesus leaves us in no suspense. He makes it crystal clear by affirming in verse 20, it will be given by the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus' reference to the Spirit of the Father who speaks in the apostles is a foretelling of the promises and the gift of the Holy Spirit that would be given to the apostles, the disciples, all believers. It would have had echoes from the Old Testament, from promises like those in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places. It was a foreshadowing of the giving and the gift of the Spirit that we see in Acts 2, of the promise in John 14 and John 16, of the looking back and looking at the gifts of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit in Corinthians and Ephesians and elsewhere. All of this would have had a tremendous comfort to those being sent out to endure persecution. But it would also be a reminder, again, of that sheep-like neediness. In other words, there's no amount of preparation you can do to prepare you for every instance. But don't worry about that. It will be given. So again, God provides. Just like he provides financially, just like he provides with food, shelter, and clothing, he will provide the message. Notice, too, how the apostles, and by example, how all disciples of Jesus Christ are to respond to persecution in the gospel. The response of the missionary, by the way, you can be a missionary from your own home. The response of the missionary when arrested is not to fight back, but only to proclaim the gospel. Our natural response is to defend and fight, but that is not the disciples' response. Now, I want to say one more thing about these verses. As hopeful as this promise of the Spirit was and is, it's not to be taken as an exhortation or permission to avoid study of Scripture and just trust the Spirit. Trust Him to give you a message whenever you share the gospel, speak, teach, or preach. Many have used this passage as justification for teaching or stepping into the pulpit and saying whatever comes to mind as if it's from the Spirit without any study. Not only is this contextually wrong, since the pulpit or sharing your faith is not the context of this promise, it also ignores the rest of Scripture. Turn with me to Psalm 119. It's a long psalm. In the middle of it, you can turn to Psalm 119, verse 41. And we're going to read this together. Psalm 119 has much to say about the Word of God. But listen to what it says in verse 41. And by the way, when you get down to verse 46, you'll, you should immediately see why I go to this Old Testament passage to show the connection and our instructions and how and what we should say and be prepared to say. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 41, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. A term for wait 
It's like someone who waits for the dawn. You study the skyline. You look for it. You long for it. You yearn for it. As the sun begins to creep up and shine with its brilliance, you rejoice in it. That's that waiting. So I will keep your law continually. Well, how do I know if I'm, gonna, if I'm keeping it? Well, I have to have studied it. I have to know it. Forever and ever. I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. There is freedom in knowing what God says. When you don't know what he says, you have a constant fear that you're not doing what's right. When you know what he said, you can live in liberty and freedom. Look what he says in verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies, where? Before kings. And I shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. You don't love something you don't know. I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Notice that the ability to have an answer, in fact, the answer itself is from the word of truth. The tool the Spirit uses to provide the answer in the time of need is Scripture. It is the word of God that is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Sharper than any two-edged sword with the precision to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. The spirit uses and draws from the well of our study and meditation. If the well is dry, there is nothing to draw from. This is not, here in Matthew 10, a passage exhorting passivity in the Christian life and study of God's word but exhorts us to fill ourselves with the word of God so that the spirit of God would give us an answer when persecuted, or as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, to anyone who asks us to give an explanation for the hope that is within us. And yet, as Blumberg notes, it does remind us that without the power of the spirit, and this is that neediness. This is that sheep-like character. Without the power of the Spirit, human rhetoric accomplishes nothing of eternal value. Even in our study, we are needy. In other words, one can't accomplish anything by our own power. We are sheep. In closing, I want to point to one more phrase that is easily missed in this section. And it's one of the most comforting statements in the midst of this warning of coming persecution. It's expression, your father. It's a reminder of the presence of the father, the love of the father, the concern of the father. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. No matter how hopeless a situation, no matter how dark the night, your father is there. His promise is echoed throughout the New Testament. More than that, the promise is itself an echo of the Old Testament promises, of the nearness and the comfort of God. Psalm 23 has for centuries been used to comfort disciples of Jesus Christ throughout life. And it's really a fitting place for us to end this morning. Turn, go and turn there to Psalm 23. It's a fitting conclusion to a reminder of persecution and suffering that will come. It's fitting on the heels of what we studied last week on mindful suffering. These words are likely familiar to you. 
Psalm 23 also takes us back to where we started. The reminder that we are needy sheep. And again, there is no shame in this acknowledgement. In fact, once you stop fighting against this reality, there is great comfort, great peace, as you stop looking to yourself, but rather to the great shepherd to care and provide for you. It's not a long psalm. It's a short one. But it's where we're going to close this morning. It's a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the study this morning, for the words that have been preserved for us by your Spirit, given to the apostles, for our edification, for our growth, for our instruction. Father, we thank you for the preparation that you have not left us blind, ignorant, unknowing about what's to come. Father, we don't know when or exactly how we will suffer persecution, how light or how severe it may be. But Lord, let the reminder this morning help to prepare us. First, let it help to establish within us a, a, an acceptance and a rejoicing in the fact that we are sheep, that we are needy. And from that, Lord, may we continually create the habit, habit of turning to you in prayer, turning to one another as members that you've given to encourage and edify. Father, may we excel at comfort and encouragement toward one another. Father, may we be students of your word, knowing that that's the source of encouragement. That it also prepares us to give an answer. Father, let us not rely upon our own rhetoric, our own abilities, but upon the knowledge of your word and pray regularly and routinely for the Spirit's work in our lives. Father, let us not shy away from the hardship of the Christian life. Father, I pray that you would give us that resolve. Father, you've prepared us. It's, Paul likens it to having equipped us with all of the armor needed. Father, with the, the sword of truth, shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. Lord, help us to live these out amongst our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers that we would be a testimony to your goodness, to your grace, and that through us, your kingdom would be made manifest. We pray these things in your name. Amen.